0: John 5, 39-47. Hear the word of the Lord. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses, in him in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Our Father, we... Um... We are very thankful for another opportunity that we have to gather together as a a people united by faith, united by faith and a common hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we devote ourselves now to the means of grace, not only to the, the corporate worship and singing and praying together with your people, but also Uh, to the hearing of your word and the preaching of your word. Lord, as we we in faith devote ourselves to the simple means of grace, these ordinary means, we pray that you would use them in an extraordinary way. God, that you would work the truth into our hearts in such a way that we would be eternally changed and impacted by what happens here this afternoon. Lord, we want to be faithful to you and we want to serve you with a whole heart. Lord, with with a pure mind. We want to grow up into maturity in Christ. And so I pray that this morning you would work among us to that end. That Jesus' name would be lifted high, Father. That you would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ among us and that you would draw our hearts after him. Lord, we love you. We trust in you. But as we always pray, we want to love you more. So please help us. Help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, coming back into John 5, and the title for today's message is, uh, You Will Not Believe. I think that's the title. Is that what's on your sheet? All right, so we're on the same page so far. Um, I'm sorry, one question. Do I need to talk into this mic, or do I need to talk into this mic? Just speak. All right. Okay. All right, so what we've seen so far in John 5 really serves as a foundation of the new section that we're in in the Gospel of John. You guys have heard me say before that right now we've entered into a second section in John's Gospel, what we might describe as like chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. That runs from uh, John chapter 5, To John chapter 12, John chapter 2 through John chapter 4 is laying before us the the glory of Christ's purpose, right, why Jesus came, what he came to accomplish, he came to to bring in the fullness of the grace of the new covenant and uh, climaxing in that that great expression of, of not only the new temple but the new birth, right, and then drawing to himself his new covenant bride. Um, Now in John chapter 5 to John chapter 12, what we see is this revelation of the glory of Christ's person. So we have in chapter 2 to chapter 4 the glory of his purpose, from chapter 5 to chapter 12 we have the glory of his person, and the foundation of everything that's going to follow from uh, chapter 5 to chapter 12 is laid for us right here in John chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the foundation of, of everything that follows because it forms the foundation of our understanding of who Jesus Christ truly is. So, what what is it that we are confessing when we confess our faith in Jesus? What are we saying when we when we declare that we believe in Him as our Lord and as our Savior? Well, at the heart of the Christian's confession of faith is not only our belief that a man named Jesus died for our sins at the heart of our belief is that that man was the son of God incarnate who died for our sins. It wasn't just a man, it was God the Son who loved us and gave himself up for us, That's Galatians 2.20, right? That's, that's the bedrock of our confession of what Jesus was doing on the cross. It wasn't just that he was a martyr who happened to be caught up in, in some political scandal or, or was misunderstood by the Jews and therefore was put to death. No, what we confess is that Jesus, as the Son of God, became the perfect man that he might lay his life down for us. That's what it means to believe and to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So that by believing in that reality of who he is, we might have life in his name. John chapter 5 lays down the foundation of what we mean when we say we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So if what Jesus says about himself here in John chapter 5 is not true, then we might as well fold up shop right now and go home. Because Christianity is a lie, the whole thing is a sham and a mockery, and Jesus isn't real, our faith is in vain. Well, the Jewish leadership in John 5 did not believe in the claims that Jesus was making about himself here in this chapter. And how did Jesus respond to their unbelief? Well, he responded by giving to them various witnesses and various testimonies that would prove or corroborate what he was saying about himself. So he points to these various ways that God the Father had testified to the truth of what Jesus was saying about himself, and you remember remember Jesus' motivation for doing that. It wasn't just to try to prove himself to them, right? He wasn't seeking glory from men. He was not seeking the approval of the Jews, as if he couldn't go on in his ministry unless the Jews somehow came alongside of him and gave him their approval. That's not what Jesus is seeking here in this chapter, what Jesus is after according to John 5:34 is their salvation. Jesus looks at them and says, "I'm saying these things to you so that you might be saved." And what does he do? He points them to the testimony of the Father through the witness of John, right? John the Baptist. They sent to John. They heard John's witness and testimony about the greater one who was coming after him, the one who John was not even worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal, they heard John declare the glory of the One who was coming after Him. They themselves were seeing with their own eyes the the miracles and the wonders that Jesus was performing. They, they, They who knew the Scriptures better than anyone else of their day and in their time. They knew the testimony of the Father concerning the Messiah, or at least they knew about it. Jesus points to all of these witnesses to corroborate his own testimony about who he is. And yet we find at the end of John chapter 5 that these Jews were still not believing in him. Now the question that we want to ask today is why. Why were the Jews not believing in Jesus? Even after Jesus pointed to all this evidence and all the testimony, that in their own eyes were beholding the reality of this, this, this wonder worker, Jesus, How is it that they could still continue in their unbelief even when faced with with such, uh, such evidence about who Jesus is? They heard John's testimony. They saw the miracles. They knew the scriptures. How could they not see and believe the evidence that was staring them right in the face? Well, John 5, verses 39 through 47 is where Jesus gives us Various reasons as to why the Jews were not believing in him. And I want to point out here, maybe at the beginning, if I, if I don't apply this well enough through the rest of the sermon, it's important to recognize that the very same reasons why these Jews were not believing in Jesus, as communicated here in John 5, are the same reasons people today won't believe in Jesus. It's not about evidence. It's not about having a corroborating testimony. It's not about lacking the evidence, I should say. The reason people don't believe in Jesus has nothing to do with lack of proof. It has everything to do with their unwillingness to believe. We're going to look at that together. So, Jesus explains in John 5, 39-47... Various reasons why these Jews did not see and believe in the truth that he was confessing about himself. In fact, he even says that so long as these men remained in this condition, as long as these things continued to be true about them, not only would they not believe, they actually could not believe. You see that in John chapter 5, verse 44. How can you believe when these things are true about yourself all right so the first thing that Jesus points out here let's look at these together I've got three we'll see if we make through make it through all of them the first thing that Jesus says about why these Jews would not believe in him was because as I just said they were unwilling to believe in him you see that in John 5 39 through 40 where Jesus says You seek or you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have or you possess eternal life. And yet it is these that bear witness about me. And then verse 40. And you are not willing to come to me in order that you might have life. Now let me point out something here. It's not that these Jews were unwilling to have life, right? It's not that they didn't want salvation. Every sinner and every rebel against God wants salvation, right? I remember in Tennessee growing up hearing all kinds of evangelists approach people with this one question, do you want to go to heaven when you die? It's like, well, well anyone in their right mind would have to say, well, yes, I want to go to heaven when i die. In fact, the unbeliever, you can imagine the unbeliever saying to himself or herself, well, yeah, if if there's a heaven and if there's a god, then that must mean that there's a hell, and if i have to choose between hell and i have to choose heaven or hell, then obviously i'm going to choose heaven. That same attitude's here with these these Jewish leaders in John chapter 5. It's not that they didn't want life. Of course they wanted life. They wanted eternal life. They even wanted eternal life with the God that they conceived of in their own minds. What they didn't want was to have to come to Jesus in order to have that life. That's what they were unwilling to do. Everyone's willing to have life Not everyone is willing to come to Jesus in order to have it. You know, really what's at the heart of their unwillingness to come to Christ was a blindness of their need for Christ. No one's going to come to Christ who doesn't think they need Christ until their eyes were opened to see that what they were setting their hopes in was not enough to save them and was not enough to bring eternal life to them, then they would never be driven to seek Christ as the answer to their malady. Same way with us, right? Sinners who are self-satisfied in their sin and in their own lifestyle and with all their possessions and all their stuff They're happy with with where they are in life, and they're happy with who they are. They have no problem. They have no concern, right? The the psalmist in Psalm 73, there's no trouble that that shakes their confidence. They're satisfied with children. They have an abundance of possessions, Psalm 17. Why should they be concerned? Well, until they are awakened to see their real state before God, they'll never be driven outside of themselves to seek the answer somewhere else. As Jesus says in John 5, 39, these men believed that they already had eternal life, right? That's why they wouldn't seek Jesus for that life. They believed they already had life. And where did they believe that life was found? Well, it says in verse 39, they searched the scriptures because they believed that in the scriptures they had eternal life. But they failed to recognize what the scriptures were saying the whole time. The scriptures were pointing them to Jesus, and they weren't willing to come to him for that life. You see, for these religious leaders in John 5, they did not believe that they needed to come to Jesus for eternal life because they thought that they already had it in the scriptures. Now, there are two different ways to understand maybe what's going on here, right? Like, what it means that they thought they had eternal life in the Scriptures. And I just want to make both of them known to you so that you don't think I'm trying to hide something from you. I can't decide which one is the right one to focus on. Maybe it's both. But there are two ways to understand what it means that the Jews thought they had eternal life in the Scriptures. The first one is that they literally thought that the more they read and studied and memorized the Scriptures the more sure they would be of gaining eternal life. So picture the scriptures. I was trying to come up with an analogy, and you'll just have to forgive the one that came to my mind, okay? Just picture the scriptures as like an eternal life power bar, right? The scriptures are this power bar that are filled with, that's filled with eternal life, and the more of that power bar that you eat, the more you get eternal life in your soul, That's that's how they were viewing the scriptures. They viewed the scriptures as the more I read these scriptures, the more I know about these scriptures, the more I memorize them, the more sure and the more confident I can be that I have eternal life with God. This was a common way of thinking in the first century. and In fact, we find in the writings of the famous Rabbi Hillel uh, a uh, a thought that, that really captures this sentiment. You may know of that name, Hillel. Maybe partnered with Shammai, Hillel and, or Shammai. Right? They, they had a big debate over divorce. And every time a preacher preaches through Matthew 19, they talk about the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Well, this, this Hillel had a, had a statement regarding how the Jews of the first century viewed the nature of Scripture and eternal life in connection with the Scriptures. Hillel said, the more study of the law, the more life. If one has gained for himself words of the law, then he has gained for himself life in the age to come. Now the thought there is the more, the more of the law that you knew and the more of the law that you memorized and the more that you had in your heart, the more sure and the more confident you could be that you would have eternal life in the age that was coming. Right? It's a very superstitious way to look at your relationship with God, isn't it? If I just read this book, If I just study this text, if I just exegete it as carefully as I can, then I will come to know God. Well, in one way that might be true. If your eyes and your heart are enlightened with the Holy Spirit and you can read and see the truth of God's word, then yes, studying the word of God is necessary for salvation. You got to know God in order to worship him. But if your end and your goal and you th- is, 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 is limited to studying the Scriptures in and of themselves because you think the more you know this book, the better your relationship with God is automatically, Jesus says that falls short. It's almost like uh, the way that Roman, Catholics, that Roman Catholicism has been on my mind the last week, as you guys can all uh, imagine, going to that funeral last week. But it's almost, the view of scripture and eternal life here is almost the way that Roman Catholics would view the sacraments, right? It's, it's, it's ex opera operato. It's, it's, it's by the work being worked that the grace is conveyed. So you don't actually have to believe in the work that's happening. You don't have to have true faith in God for that work to be effective in your heart. It's simply by the right of being baptized that you are translated into a state of grace. It's by going through the motion of confession and penance that you somehow make satisfaction for your sin and are forgiven and made right with God. It's, it's through the, the, the offering of the sacrifice of the mass that salvation is affected. I, we sat and listened. If you questioned my, my view of Catholic theology, we sat and listened last week to the hope of a Roman Catholic priest giving this false hope to the family that as we offer this Mass, we know, Lord, that you are setting our brother free and welcoming him into your eternal kingdom. They viewed the Mass as being effective for salvation of God's people, and that's, that's bogus, right? That's superstition. That's not true. That's not, how the, that's not how this works. Well, in a very similar way, that's how the Jews of the first century came to view the Scriptures. It was just by the reading of the Scriptures, by the work being worked, they were sanctified and made right with God. You know, many Christians can think that way too. They can gauge their relationship with God based on how much Scripture they know or how much theology they can rattle off. How many verses or how many chapters of the Bible they have memorized or just because they've read the Bible through time and time again, year after year, following that Bible reading plan. That can become their confidence of being in a right relationship with the Lord. I've known people, I mean, you, you, can, you can go talk to Bart Ehrman. And, and listen to him expound the message of the scriptures and ask him to declare the message or the, 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 the scriptures that he has memorized. And he will be able to rattle them off in a heartbeat. But he is an open apostate. He confesses that he is an apostate. He has renounced faith in the Lord. He's an unbeliever and yet he knows more about the message of the Bible than most Christians do. It's not simply knowing the message of the Scriptures or having read the Bible that causes someone to be saved. It's believing that message that brings salvation. It's following through with what God has to say to us in His Word by faith. That is what accomplishes salvation within our hearts. If there's no faith in the heart, then the Word is going to remain ineffective. Hebrews chapter 3, right? They heard the gospel message, but why didn't it bring about their salvation? Because the message that they heard was not united with faith in the hearers. You know, God's word itself tells us that this is not the way that a relationship with him is established or even continued by this superstitious kind of view of our relationship with the Bible. Romans 2.13, it's not those who are hearers of the law who are just before God. It's those who are doers of the law who will be justified. And you remember throughout the Old Testament, God's rebuke of his wayward people was not that they had not studied the law enough, even though that was part of it. His rebuke to them was that they did not obey the word of God that they actually knew. Which leads us to a second way to understand how they viewed the Scriptures as giving them eternal life. They not only viewed it in this superstitious way, but they also understood eternal life to be something that they could gain by their own obedience to the Scriptures. This is probably the one we're most familiar with, right? That they believed that they would gain eternal life through their own obedience of the Scriptures. Therefore, they searched the Scriptures in order to understand what they needed to do in order to be righteous before God and in order to earn eternal life, and then they went forth and they did it. So so the, the, the law of God became like this checklist of their lives. Well, let me just go to the Word, let me find out what God wants me to do, and then I'll do it and I'll have eternal life. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with that approach to your relationship with God? Isaiah 64, 6, right? If you had the most righteous deeds possible that you could do in your life, God would still view them as filthy rags before him. You could never do enough to cause God to be happy and pleased with you in and of yourself. You could never earn salvation by your obedience to his law. And besides that, that's not why the law was given, right? Right? The Jews, Romans chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, they they were seeking, they, they had a zeal for God, but it was not a zeal that was according to knowledge. They were seeking to establish a righteousness of their own by their own obedience to the law, but they missed the message of God that was being communicated through that law, that their righteousness could not stand before Him, and there was another righteousness that God was going to provide through the Messiah, and it was by faith in the Messiah that they would find their right standing before Him. This is Galatians 3.21, right? The the, the law was not given in order to impart life. It could not impart life. Rather, Galatians 3.24, the law was given in order to be a tutor, right? In order to be a teacher. And what was the law designed to teach us? Our need for Christ and to teach us to run to Him in faith. These Jews in John 5, they believed that they were going to have eternal life by by seeking to understand God's will for them, what he wanted them to do, have all the commands listed out. And then if they simply went forth and obeyed them, then they they were confident that they would have eternal life. The real problem there is that they were trusting in themselves for salvation and for righteousness. They were not looking to the Lord. You see that in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. For example... This is why Jesus says in John five thirty nine, you search the scriptures because you think that eternal life is found in them, but you have failed to see that they were always pointing to me. That, that is the eternal life that is found in the Old Testament scriptures. It's not eternal life by our own works. You know, many Christians get confused about this. They think that somehow the Jews in the Old Testament or Israel in the Old Testament was saved simply by keeping the law. Like that's the Old Testament way of God dealing with people, but he doesn't deal with people like that in the New Testament anymore. that's not true. From Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the very first promise of the gospel came forth to God's sinful people, Adam and Eve. And that promise was not a promise of salvation by works. It was a promise of salvation through the Messiah. The seed of the woman would come. He would be your Savior. And the only way that Adam and Eve and all of their descendants would be reconciled to God was by having hope and faith in that promised Messiah. That's in Genesis chapter 3. That's at the very beginning of the law. That means that faith in the coming Messiah was absolutely necessary in order to faithfully obey God and His will that was revealed in the law. You had to have faith as the foundation of your relationship with God first. Otherwise, all of your obedience to God's law would be nothing. It would be vain and empty. It would be unsatisfying in God's sight, and therefore you would not be accepted. Even for the Jew. See, the eternal life that was given by God through the Old Testament Scriptures was not eternal life that was contained in the Scriptures themselves. It was the eternal life that the Scriptures were pointing to, the message of life that God was making known to His people. This is 2 Timothy 3.15, right? That the Old Testament Scriptures, they they did not contain life, but, but they contain wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in the Messiah. That was the eternal life communicated to the Jews and to Israel through the Old Testament, and that's the eternal life message that they missed. They thought it was all about them and their working, but God the whole time was telling them, no, it's about my son, it's about the Messiah, and you gotta believe in him if you'll be saved. Now, does anyone know what time I started? Anybody? One thirty is when I started. Okay, cool. <laughs> I won't do that to you. Um, I won't do that to myself either, Corbin. Yeah. I'll take those four minutes. That was the state of these Jews that to whom Jesus was speaking. Their confidence was in eternal life that they would gain through the Old Testament Scriptures. And that's why they searched so diligently to understand the Old Testament Scriptures, because that was their way of salvation. Jesus says, You missed the whole point. The message of the entire Old Testament was me. And here I am standing in your midst, and you can't even connect the dots. You think you know the Scriptures. You think that you've searched them diligently and that you've found out God's will for you in the Word and yet here I am the will of God for you and you're rejecting me. That's the blindness of the human heart. The depth of blindness that you can see the very truth presented before your eyes day after day or for us week after week month after month, year after year and still continue In your unbelief. Notice in John five forty, where does Jesus lay blame for their unbelief? What's the culprit? What's the reason? What's the cause for why these Jews would not come to Jesus? They were unwilling. Some might say that, well, they didn't come to Jesus because they misunderstood the Scriptures. That's why they didn't come to Jesus. It was just a simple misunderstanding, right? And besides, aren't the Scriptures so complicated? I mean, could Jesus really have expected them to understand the message of the Old Testament? Isn't it just a a slip of the mind? Just simple misunderstanding here? Well, Jesus says no. It's not a matter of misunderstanding Jesus' message. That's not why they wouldn't come to Jesus. They would not come to Jesus because they would not come to Jesus. They were unwilling. It's probably better to understand and translate this as they did not want to come to Jesus. That's really the essence of this word here in John 5, 40. Scriptures, the ones that you study... They all testify about me, and yet you don't have a desire to come to me. Why is that? Why did they not have a desire to come to Jesus? You remember Jesus lays this this very same statement upon them just before his crucifixion. He he stands over Jerusalem, and what does he cry out over Jerusalem? He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. You did not want it, is a more literal translation of that. I would have gathered your children together under me, but you would not have it. Why? Well, I'm not going to linger too much on this because we're going to talk a lot about the bondage of the human will, Martin Luther, bondage of the will. We're going to talk a lot about that in future sermons. But what Jesus says here to these Jews tells us something really important about humanity's fallen condition, and it's something we all need to understand about ourselves outside of Christ. Why do men not believe in Jesus? As I've said, it's because they do not want to believe in Jesus. And let me tell you something that is impossible for every single one of you to do in this room. It is impossible for you to go against what you want to do. It is. It is absolutely impossible for you to choose not to do what you think is your greatest good. Or the greatest good for you until your mind is open to see what the greatest good truly is, until your heart is enlightened to receive the truth about who Jesus is, you're always going to view something else as more valuable, more important, more necessary. See, our greatest problem and the greatest problem of these Jews in John 5, the greatest obstacle that we face in relation to salvation is not a lack of opportunity to be saved. It's not a lack of information about how to be saved, nor is it a lack of evidence about where salvation can be found. Didn't these men have all of that? They had opportunity, right, because the Word of Life was standing right in front of them. They they had information about how to be saved. Jesus is standing right there saying, if you want to be saved, you must come to Me. You must believe in Me if you want salvation. They had that. Didn't they also have evidence? How could you watch? I mean, isn't that John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you were sent from God because no one could do the signs you do unless God were with him. They recognized that Jesus was special. They recognized that God was with Jesus in a very unique way. And yet, yet, they still would not believe See, our rebellion against God and our refusal to come to Christ is not primarily an intellectual problem. It's not primarily a lack of self discipline or self mastery that's that's at work here that's keeping us from coming to Christ. Unbelief is a heart problem. It's a problem of disordered affections and fractured desires. That's, that's what unbelief is. It's not simply a decision that you've made not to believe. It's a disposition of your heart. You are an unbeliever. You don't simply choose not to believe. Not you personally, I'm just generally. right. Us outside of Christ, what are we? We are by nature sinners. That means we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Our greatest problem is is not a lack of evidence or a lack of someone telling us what we need to do because Jesus is right here in front of these men telling them exactly what they needed to do and giving them all the evidence in the world that would found true faith in Him. And yet they were still choosing not to believe. What more was needed in order for them to believe? They must be set free from the bondage of their own wills, right? Right? You who are saved, you who are saved in this room, you know exactly what it's like when God comes to liberate you from the bondage of yourself. When you're finally set free from those sinful desires that you had lived for with all of your might your entire life, you were finally given a mind that was awakened to see the truth about Jesus in a way that you could never have seen before on your own. That's what caused you to come to Jesus. It was God and His grace opening up your eyes and letting you see His glory and seeing Him as someone who was worthy, someone who was desirable, someone who you could run after and be safe in. You didn't see that on your own. You saw that because the Holy Spirit awakened you to see that. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 17 and 18. I said I'm not going to linger on this, so we're going to move on. But sinners will die separated from God and without eternal life, not for a lack of opportunity to be saved. They will die separated from God and without eternal life because they had a lack of willingness to be saved. That's our main problem. The Pharisees in John 5 had all the knowledge and they saw all the miracles. They had all the proof, and yet they still did not believe. And they would not believe until their self centered wills were finally broken and they could see their need for Christ. We're not going to get through the rest of this, which is fine. Let me end on this one. I'm going to clear everything else off so I'm not tempted to keep going. Um, One reason why these Jews were not coming to Christ was because they were not willing to come. They were enslaved to their own desires and their desires did not want Jesus. But why didn't they want to come to Jesus? Why didn't they want to receive Jesus as their Messiah and have this offer of free grace held on to by them? Why didn't they wanna receive that if it came from Jesus' hands? Well, Jesus goes on to give, I think, two reasons for that we're only going to get to one here in in our closing time closing minutes here but the reason why Jesus says they were not willing to come to him in order to have life first of all was because they did not truly love God they did not have a true love for God in their hearts therefore they were not willing to come to the One whom God had sent. Right? Because the One whom God has sent, Jesus has already said in John chapter 5, what's the Father's view of that One? Doesn't doesn't it say that the Father loves the Son? And, And everything that the Father is doing is to the end that the Son would be magnified and honored by everyone. Well, if that's the Father's will and you find in yourself that you don't want to honor the Son whom the Father loves, you don't want to obey the Son whom the Father has established as King over you, if that's your disposition, then you cannot claim to love God because God loves the One whom He sent. And you don't love the One whom He sent, therefore you can't love the sender. Jesus says the reason that they did not want to come to him. The reason they were unwilling to come to him is because they did not truly love God. Now, how offensive was that to hear for these Pharisees? Right, I mean, Matthew chapter five, Jesus uses the Pharisees as the standard of what we have to be greater than in our righteousness if we're gonna be saved. He says, you must be more righteous than the Pharisees if you would be saved. And that was shocking for people to hear that. Jesus is here talking to those who were viewed as the supreme, quintessential lovers of God in their day. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, you have no love for God in your heart. And I know that because you won't come to me. Verses 41 and 42. Jesus says to them, From man I do not receive glory, but I know you, that the love of God is not in you, or you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Anyone who reads the scriptures knows that at the heart of all true religious devotion and worship to God is love. That's what must be at the heart, otherwise it's not acceptable, right? I mean, it's like, like, like in the old covenant, uh, sacrifices had to be offered with salt, right? Well, it's like in the new covenant, sacrifices of obedience to God must be seasoned with the salt of love or else it's not acceptable, 1 Corinthians 8.1, it's not even about knowledge. It's not about how much you know. That does not make you acceptable in God's sight because knowledge has the potential to puff up, right? It has the potential to make proud and arrogant. And God is opposed to the proud. He does not give grace to those who are proud. That can be an effect of knowledge. And also it says in 1 Corinthians 8.3 that it's not how much you know that gets God's attention, It's not how much you know about God that gets his attention. It's whether or not you love him. Do you love God? Paul says, if you love God, then you are known by God. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. What is God doing? His eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth. And what is he looking for? He's looking to see those whose hearts are truly devoted or wholly devoted to him. And even in the law, right? What was the demand? What was the clear expectation of God revealed through the law? Was it not that they would love him with all that they are? I mean, it's shocking that the Pharisees would not have understood this, right? They understood the principle that they needed to love God. That was part of the Shema. That's what every faithful Jew would, would pray every morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. With everything that you are, you will love him or else you're not acceptable to him. They knew that. But what had happened was they'd misdefined or redefined what it meant to love God according to their own understanding and their own evaluation of what God is like. See, in all their religious devotion and in studying and obeying the scriptures, their perceived zeal for God and their efforts for eternal life, what was missing in all of it was a genuine and sincere love for the Lord. Now, how did Jesus know that? As I said, it's because they wouldn't come to him. They didn't love God because they would not come to the one whom God loves. And that was enough to prove that they were not genuine. Now, feeling a little flustered. I feel the time, right? Tick, 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 tick. That's what happens. Jesus says they would have been willing to receive someone who came in their own name, right? Isn't that verse 43? Jesus says, I know that you don't have the love of God in yourselves because I've come in my Father's name and you don't receive me if another comes in his name, you would receive him. And you can see there what they were truly desiring. What, what were they really after? Jesus came in the name of his Father, meaning Jesus came exalting the holiness and the righteousness of God the Father. Jesus came teaching the truth about God the Father. Jesus came calling all men to repent of their sins and return to God the Father, that God the Father was the exalted one. God is the one who is over all things. And all men need to find their submission under him. Jesus declared the name of the Father to these Jews, and yet they were not willing to receive him. But how many men came in their own names, seeking their own glory, and by extension, seeking their approval? Because you cannot seek seek your own glory without seeking everyone else's approval. You got to get your own glory from somewhere. Where are you going to get it? From the people around you. So you've got to play to them in order for them to glorify you. That's the, that's the trap, the snare of the fear of man. Right? They were willing to receive those who came in their own name seeking their own glory because they had to play to the desires of the Jews of that day. And, and that happened so many, I mean, rabb- rabbinical writings show as many as 64 false messiahs that came during that first century period. Right? claiming to be the Messiah and, and claiming that they would bring about the messianic kingdom if they only had the approval of the Jewish leadership. And guess what? For the vast majority of those false messiahs, the Jewish leaders were right behind them. Climaxing in like 131 with Simeon uh, Bar- Barkoshva or something like that. Now, that, that. That instigated the final wiping out of the Jews by Rome in Jerusalem. They were willing to accept someone who came in in his own name and for his own glory. They weren't willing to receive Jesus who came in the name of the Father, which proved they didn't love the Father. Now, just ending on application here. You will never have a rightly ordered relationship with God that is not filled with true love for God. At the heart of all true devotion to God and, and, and a true willingness to come to Christ is a true love for God. What that means is that what the Lord wants from you and what the Lord wants from me is not mere obedience for the sake of obedience. What the Lord wants from us is not simply service or sacrifice or discipline for the sake of service, sacrifice, or discipline. Now, those, those things have really important roles in, to play in the Christian life, but that's not what Christianity is all about. The call of Christianity is to obey. The call of Christianity is to die to yourself, to sacrifice your own desires for the sake of following through on the will of God putting to death the deeds of the body that you might live. That's part of Christianity, but that's not the foundation of it. That is not the foundation of a relationship with God. What God wants from us, what He wants from me, and what He wants from you, my friends, is He wants your love. God is after your love for Him, and anything short of that is unacceptable. That's what counts. Not your obedience to law, not your works, not your, your, your rote Bible study or scripture memorization or seeking to live a moral and upstanding life. That's not what God is after. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, it's not circumcision that counts for anything, nor is it uncircumcision that counts for anything. It's not obedience to the law that matters. What matters is that you have faith that works through love. Do you believe in God and does that faith in God drive you to obey His will because you've come to love Him? You've come to know Him and now you rejoice in the knowledge that you have of God. Do you love Him and is your obedience salted with that love for God? Is that why you read the Scriptures? Is that why you get on your knees in the morning and pray to your Heavenly Father? Is it because you love Him? Or is it still viewed as a chore and the duty that you owe him? Ephesians 6.14, I believe. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I think that reference is wrong. I think it's verse 18. But the blessing of God rests upon those who love Jesus with love that is incorruptible. I wonder, do we find in ourselves a love for Jesus, at least growing within us, a love for Jesus that is incorruptible? A love that's not challenged by a love for the things of the world? A love that's not diminished by our own desires for the things of the world or the lust of the flesh or the boastful pride of life? Do we have a love for Jesus that is uncontested in our hearts? That's what Jesus is after. How are you going to have that kind of love? How are you and I going to grow in that kind of love? Because if you are an honest believer like me, you know that you don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength the way you should. You don't love Jesus in such an uncontested way that you know you're supposed to. So what do we do? How do we respond to that? If that's what God wants from us, where do we turn? just, Just briefly in closing here. In order to love God the way he desires for us to love him, we have to grow in our understanding and in our faith in God's love for us. If you want to love God the way God calls you to love Him, you must come to understand and believe more firmly in the love that God has for you. We love because He first loved us. If you're going to love God, then you've got to come to the point where God's love for you, His first love for you, when you were unwilling, when you were undeserving, when you were disobedient, when you were filled with enmity against God, God chose to love you. If you're going to grow in your own love for Him, you've got to come to the point where you recognize the depth of love that God has shown you in Jesus Christ. You've got to. There's no, there's no shortcut for that. There's, nothing, there's no substitute that can help you love God. You must come to God and see His love for you. And if you can't see His love for you, there's no way you can love Him. You will never love a God whom you see as always being angry with you. You will never love a God whom you see as a God that is constantly waiting on you to make him happy. Or is constantly disappointed because you just don't measure up. You're never going to love a God like that and praise the Lord. That's not the God that we have. We don't have a God who was waiting on us to love Him before He would love us. We have a God, John three sixteen, who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son when the world was at enmity with Him. You're part of that world, aren't you? Aren't you among the sinners of the world whom God has chosen to love in Jesus Christ? Then you are called by God to rise up in faith and believe it. Believe in God's love for you. Romans 5, 6, it was when we were helpless that Christ died for us, when he died for the ungodly. It wasn't because we were godly. It wasn't because we could help it. It's because we couldn't help it. We were ungodly to our core. And yet Jesus came in love and gave his life for us. If Jesus died for you then, will he not much more receive you now that you've been made a lover of Christ? Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God wasn't waiting on you to demonstrate, waiting on you to love him for him to demonstrate his love for you. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he gave his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. The sacrifice that would satisfy the demands of God's law that stood against us and to bring reconciliation and peace between God and his enemies. That's how much God loves us. He gave his son to be that satisfying sacrifice for us. My question to you is, do you believe that? And are you growing in your belief in that? Despite your failures and despite those mars that you see on your face when you look in the mirror every day, Despite those stains on your soul that you pick up daily as you live life in this world, despite what you know to be true about yourself and your own failures, can you rise above all of that and still declare in faith, my Jesus loves me, and I know that because he gave himself for me. The more that you can do that, the more you can see the love of God like that, the more you will love God with your life. That's the secret. So may we spend our day today and the rest of our days thinking and meditating more upon the love of God in Christ because that's where the power to live the Christian life is going to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. and um, You are great and glorious, Lord, and we pray that you would magnify the greatness of Christ's name among us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. He's done great things. He's done great things for us, and we shall be glad in him. Did you hear a benediction from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 23 and 24? Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. May you go in the peace of Christ's name. And may you know more of that incorruptible love in the week ahead. Amen. Amen.